Welcome to First Mile's Climate Heroes. I'm your host, Bruce Bratley, founder of recycling company First Mile. On this show, we meet and learn from the climate heroes who are building solutions right now to tackle climate change. Biomanufacturing uses living cells to produce a wide range of products, including pharmaceuticals, biofuels and various chemicals. A good example of this is insulin, which is now produced using primarily biomanufacturing techniques, where previously it was extracted from the pancreases of slaughtered cows and pigs. Using cells as mini-manufacturing units works, but they have efficiency restrictions. And these restrictions can be removed if the proteins that work in cells are supported on structures to function outside of cells. And today's guest is Grant Aaron, CEO of Fabric Nano, who is advancing biomanufacturing by creating processes which manufacture chemicals using proteins supported on inert non-cell structures. Grant, we're looking forward to hearing all about this and welcome to First Mile's Climate Heroes. Thanks, Bruce, for having me on. It's, uh, it's great to, to meet you in uh, the recording studio. Great. Well, I want to start right now because I think I've probably done a terrible uh, introduction to what biomanufacturing is. So can you tell us what's biomanufacturing and what's Fabric Nano doing? Great. The biomanufacturing space is definitely one of these in the deep tech startup ecosystem. I think when people think of biomanufacturing, they should think the merging of climate tech, industrial bio, synbio, all these things really come together for biomanufacturing chemicals. But to give you a better understanding of how big this solution can be, I'd like to go back to nature. I mean, when we look into nature and we look at the forests and we look how large and massive they are, this is all materials that are made using biology. You look at the bark of a tree and how hard it is. You look at your human hair on your head and how soft it is and the the cuticle on your nail. All of these materials are made using biology. And the common misconception is that they're traditionally made by cells in that biology and plant cells and the human cells. But actually, it's the protein. It's the protein inside of all these cells that is the productive machinery that allows us to make all these chemicals, which then make these materials possible. So at Fabric Nano, what we're trying to do is we're trying to harness those proteins inside of biology to make pretty much any chemical that nature is capable of making, but to do it in an industrial setting. And so that's what cell-free biomanufacturing means to us. It means harnessing the power of natural proteins to make chemicals. And can you give us an example, sort of specific example of, uh, you know, what is a protein? Because most people think they're not getting enough protein if they switch to a vegan diet or it's, in a, it's, a, it's a slab of steak. But they're great examples. And I gave the, in the introduction, I gave the example of manufacturing insulin within cells. But you're saying there's all this wonderful stuff out there that doesn't get manufactured in cells and it's just part of nature. Can you give an example of a protein and how that works? I think this is where a lot of the tricky distinction comes from. So there are proteins that we ingest, and then we use those amino acids, the building blocks of protein, just like the basis of DNA, to reconstruct proteins in our own body. And there are proteins we use for medicine, like insulin that you're talking about. But what we're really talking about is all the proteins that basically operate as an assembly line in things like yeast to convert sugar to alcohol. So proteins exist within cells predominantly, to do things that are known as biochemistry, to give us new molecules from starting molecules. And we think that this is the technology, these types of proteins, which are traditionally called enzymes, using these proteins that do chemistry could enable us to make pretty much any chemical with 100% efficiency, because we're going to the real fundamental unit of what biology is doing when it makes materials. 
Amazing. So it turns out once again that nature knows what it's doing. Um, and uh, we're trying to sort of reconstruct this sort of mechanical world over the top of it. But actually, your business really is going, nature's got all these amazing processes. How do we work symbiotically with them to design a better future? Is that right? Exactly. And I think what a lot of people have gotten wrong in the past is thought is this thought process that cells are the fundamental unit of production. And so if you have this conception, you think that yeast is as small as you can go, you'll start to use the genetics of yeast to try to produce new things. So take sugar and make plastic instead of something like alcohol. But really what is, I think, the most fascinating thing that I've learned in this space, coming into it as an economist and not as a biochemist, is that it's actually the protein machinery inside which is the fundamental unit. And so if you can start operating with that protein, you can really start operating at the base layer for how biology is able to produce materials. So uh, let me just very basically, so yeast is a cell, is that right? So if we're making things inside the yeast, there's a cell, and you're going, actually, what's happening within that, which is the, the, the biochemistry of the proteins is the key thing. That's exactly right. And these, these cells are incredibly inefficient. So if you think about how much alcohol you actually get when you use yeast to brew beer, it's typically 5 to 6 7% maybe. If you have wine, 15%. But if you're starting to use this type of machinery, these types of cells to produce commodity chemicals, you're losing 85% of your inputs to something else. And that's not going to scale. That's not going to give us the materials we need that are biocompatible and synergistic with the environment. And is that because it's the same thing as basically a human body eating a, a steak or a chickpea to then manufacture its own proteins? It's the same thing in a cell. That's correct. You want to get to the base layer of how to produce the thing that you need efficiently. You don't want to be supporting yeast multiplying. You don't want to support even the yeast breathing. When we try to brew alcohol, what we traditionally get is lots of CO2 through respiration. So although these processes in cells look like they're very biocompatible and synergistic with the environment, every kilogram of material made via something that is a living organism is producing a respiration of CO2 into the atmosphere. Amazing. And so you've got 30 people in a lab. Well, you've got 30 people in London. Are they in a lab? Have you got people in white coats building things? Or is this at the moment data models? We've got about 20 PhD postdoc scientists in white lab coats. They're trying to solve one big fundamental problem. And so that fundamental problem is that if I want to take this productive machinery, these proteins, and extract them from nature and use them in something like an industrial flow or pipe reactor to make chemicals all day long, the problem I run into is that pulling this protein outside of its host will typically leave you with about an hour of function. These proteins denature when they're pulled outside of the traditional ecosystem that they are built in. So as soon as I pull it outside of yeast. And so what we try to do at our company, Fabric Nano, is we try to take these proteins and put them in contact with surfaces, things like beads, sand, coffee grinds, for example. And when we put these proteins in contact with these surfaces, they end up having stability that lasts for six months to a year. And once we've done this, we now have the fundamental unit operator to make chemicals, to do material conversion. So in a way, it's kind of like the, the analogy I love to give is the one of a semiconductor, a microprocessor. We have transistors, but alone transistors are useless. If you put them on silicon, you start to create higher level functionality. We do the same thing with protein. It is the base unit of biology for making materials, but we have to learn how to put it on surfaces 
in a way that provides stability so that these, these functional blocks can actually operate for our benefit. And so at our company, we use a lot of machine learning models to try to understand how proteins come into contact with surfaces so that we can architect good bioprocessors, just like we've already architected good microprocessors for the information age. And is that the same is that the same concept as happening in a cell? So in a cell, if you look at a protein in a cell, is it attached to a surface within the cell and you're basically recreating a surface that's outside the cell? You could think of it that way. So in cells, there are many, many compartments and areas in which these proteins operate. And so the cells have figured out their own very kind of mushy way of getting this all done. But if we think about industrialization, we want to move away from the artisanal, the evolution, to the explicit engineering of good protein and surface interaction that would then work inside of very, very big industrial reactors. And so our goal is always to take something that is kind of separate from the way the chemical industry operates today, this mushy world of lots of water, and create something that is much more akin to a unit operator that these industrial chemical companies can actually drop in and use today. Because we need the solution. The chemical industry currently is producing about 10% of the global GHG emissions, giving us the materials that we need for our everyday lives. You can imagine plastic and things like that. Interesting. And so we, we, we occasionally, in the waste recycling sector, we occasionally see these articles pop up that say someone's invented a, a cell-based organism, let's say a bacteria or a yeast or whatever, that can eat, quote-unquote, uh, plastic bottles. And is that the similar sort of thing where actually it's the it's the proteins within the cell that are doing that work, and actually you can design a system that could convert a PET plastic bottle, for example, back into the base chemicals? That's that's precisely correct. There are a lot of companies who try to use organisms to do this work, and those organisms don't like to operate in hot tanks with plastic present. Right? It's very difficult to get an organism like yeast to scale. We happen to be lucky with things like brewing beer and brewing alcohol. But a lot of these new companies that are using pet degradation are going directly to the protein. And so there's a protein called a pet ase. We love to stick A-S-E at the end when it degrades something. So we've got pet ases that are now being directly deployed into plastic vats to try to degrade things like pet. And so the world is really catching up to this technology, but it is the reactor implementation which requires a lot of capital which requires an ecosystem that doesn't presently exist really all that well in venture capital. And it's very difficult in terms of timelines to get these reactors on board and moving in a global setting. First Mile is the UK's leading waste management service. We help over 30,000 businesses reduce their carbon impact with our award-winning range of recycling solutions. Go to our website, which is thefirstmile.com. .co.uk to get started today. If you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe. We have brand new episodes every Wednesday. And so if you had to look at the sort of the, the climate emergency we've got at the moment, I mean, there's so many things that we need to address. What are the top three problems that Fabric Nano can help us solve um, from a climate perspective? Because I imagine you get this challenge all the time when you've got 30 very intelligent people in your business that want to have a go at everything. How do you keep them focused? And have you got a list of sort of top three, top five things that you're trying to tackle that are going to have the most impact on, on the climate emergency? Yeah, so I think the way that we're currently framing this, and, and it is important to have this narrow focus, is that we're trying to detoxify. So we keep saying we have programs to detoxify the home, 
and we have programs to detoxify the planet. And as you mentioned, there are other things that other companies are going after in terms of detoxifying us from waste, things like pet plastic. Now, single proteins are very good at breaking things because there's only one thing you have to do. You have to basically cut. And if you can cut, you've detoxified to some extent the problem that you have in front of you. If you can take CO2 and you can fix it to something or methane and fix it to something, and that becomes a a solid material, you can actually put it back in the earth. You can put it back in the ground. And so what we look at as a company is where do we have the opportunity to use protein to do a very simple click or cut of a molecule that then changes the dynamic for the entire ecology of the planet. And we think that there are a lot of opportunities in that space. So uh, potentially fixing carbon directly from the sort of carbon direct air capture, but without any of these giant fans and buzzing machines that we have in Iceland. That is one of the areas we find to be the most fascinating. So if you look at things like carbon sequestration, carbon sequestration is full of very expensive machinery, things that are very expensive to implement. But if you look at the use of protein, there's almost no examples of a company using protein to do this. There are a few, but nothing like the big industrial chemical version of trying to pull CO2 out of the atmosphere in DAC systems. And so... What we're hoping to do is to launch a few products that work on this, using proteins to do carbon sequestration. And so this is going beyond the chemical versions that use solvents and other dangerous things to the environment to pull down carbon dioxide. But it's also going beyond using organisms that are able to pull down and fix methane, nitrogen, and other things that we need for plant growth and healthy planet, like circularity. We're going direct to the protein. We don't think many companies are doing that. And it's surprising. Yeah. And and is that because there's a catch here that we haven't got to? Because it sounds like the science is great, but if you make it work. But is there a problem here where the input materials are going to be very expensive to get the proteins to work? Or is the industrial infrastructure around keeping these proteins attached to the beads that make them work? Is that just very expensive to operate? Or is it just because people haven't figured it out yet? Well, let's give you an example. If I was able to make a NVIDIA chip that was doing GPU computation, and I used it for one hour, then the thing was dead and I could never use it again, there could be no price that would open up the market for GPU. It's just too expensive to produce one chip that is able to be used and utilized for one hour. The same is true of proteins that need to be used in the environment to do chemistry. If I have to produce a protein, there's a cost to that. But if it lasts only an hour, there's no point in launching these products into these markets. But what our company has primarily focused on while we've been in semi-stealth mode for the last three to four years is we've worked on this protein immobilization onto surface problem. And we're the only company that's really focused on that matching algorithm, the machine learning that puts a protein in contact with the surface. And because we've done that, we now have these biocatalysts or bioprocessors, protein plus material that are able to work for six months to a year or to even two years, three years, four years. And if we're able to build those types of products, the costs start to make sense for us deploying these things into very large carbon sequestration projects. And when you say it say, runs for 12 months, is that basically if you, you ship a, a bioreactor with materials and proteins in it, is that it? Or does it need to be fed proteins to keep it uh, functioning? So let's, let's stick with the NVIDIA example. NVIDIA doesn't ship you a computer. They ship you the catalyst or the bioprocessor, microprocessor inside of a computer. What we ship looks like a protein powder tub. So if you've ever had whey protein powder in the morning to try to supplement your diet and you see that tub of powder, there are proteins in there. 
ours are proteins similarly in a powder format that are connected to something. You take them to the site, you use them in the reactor, you use them in the decentralized field of a farm. But as soon as you've used this material, you know it's going to last and you see the functional benefit for much longer than a day, much longer than a week. You see the benefit for six months to a year. So, Grant, I just want to turn to you a little bit. So you, you slipped in very, very gently at, at, at the start of your introduction that, and, and then went on to sound extremely knowledgeable about biomanufacturing. Indeed, you're an economist. So can we trust an economist with this wonderful science? Um, and how on earth did you get into biotech from a, the background of being an economist? Yeah, that's one of the best questions uh, that still surprises me today. So I am... <laughs> a true outsider to the world of biomanufacturing. Up until four years ago, five years ago, I'd never heard of the word biomanufacturing, cell-free. No one had ever heard of those words, but I hadn't even heard of the word protein biochemistry. And today we do lots of protein biochemistry, protein engineering, all these types of things that are used and implemented in this field. When I was taking my education, I was much more of a physical, where is the machine part? So I went into a mechanical engineering degree and learned how plane wings that are built by Boeing oscillate. I learned how you could design a car to operate a cruise control. And so when I was doing my undergraduate studies, I was much more interested in the very macro physical world, big engines, big planes, big rockets, like a lot of people are still interested in today. But I moved toward working in the, the field of data and doing a little stint at the central bank in the United States, and then starting a PhD in London in econometrics. So applying statistics to heavy statistics to economic behavioral and other types of theories. It's at this point that I dropped out of my PhD in the third year and joined this thing called Entrepreneur First. And this was a really eye-opening experience for me because there were 100 people speed dating to form a company, essentially. And when I went there, I tried to pitch Here's the vision of a better world for financial technology and software. And nobody wanted to work on that problem. And so very quickly at that program, I learned in the accelerator to kind of give up on my old technology and start to ask people about what was interesting in the world. And it's here that I learned about biotechnology for the first time. And as soon as you get into the guts of biotechnology, as soon as you get past the genetics, which seems quite messy and confusing and that you need a huge PhD degree in it, you start to see that biology is really composed of the same mechanical parts as a car. The proteins are very specific. They do exactly what they're supposed to do every time. And you need to learn to work with them in a coherent framework in a system. And so when I learned this about biology for the first time, I learned that this is a place that I would love to build a career and a place that I could if I was only able to raise enough money and build a team of PhD scientists who could explain to me the fundamental units of biology, which are the proteins. And so I'm very grateful to the company that we have today because it's really a company of sharing, full of curiosity and learning about new things. But essentially, I learned about biotechnology because of the vision of the technology and what it could do for the climate and the fact that no one was looking at the fundamental way in which this technology, biotechnology, was actually working for synthesizing chemicals. And so that's kind of the genesis of how I moved from physical world to the data world back to the physical world. It's just about how great biotechnology can be. Google DeepMind, I think, uh, last week announced that they'd run some tests on some possible new compounds of materials. And I think they found 2 million new compounds or 
you'll correct me whether it was a compound or whatever chemical structure it was, and then they sort of narrowed it down to a short list of 30,000 or 40,000 that, that warrants some further sort of analysis. Is Are you running the same sort of programs where you're effectively going, right, okay, we've, we want to take the protein that degrades alcohol or captures carbon or cuts something, do you then analyze a huge data set of possibilities and before you bring it down to the to the ones that are worthwhile? And the second part of that question is when it gets to the lab, are you within the, in the lab for, for, for weeks and months trying to work out if it's viable or not, or is that a relatively short process as well? So I love that reference to the current events. I was also reading that story this morning on the tube, actually. It is incredible what we're able to do in terms of contracting the potential search space for things nowadays. We use all of the same algorithms that these types of companies are using. We use, and so let's just describe that for a minute. A lot of these algorithms are taking what looks like text and converting it to, this is the right answer. And so in biology, we could read the DNA of these proteins, and we know that the protein will go from that DNA to that functionality. But then the question becomes, how do you choose the right DNA strand that has the best chance of binding to something like a coffee bean? or grain of sand. And so we use the same algorithms to do that. We filter from millions of possibilities. There are hundreds of thousands of species that have the right protein that we need, and we filter it down to 10 or 20. And then to do the second part of your question, we use a high throughput liquid handling robot. And so this robot will move fluids around and enables us to take DNA that we order from many companies that now produce DNA of synthetic nature, and we're able to produce the desired protein in less than a week, and then test it on these supports. So we're able to do a lot of like high-throughput screening. We build specialist data, and then the specialist data retrains the algorithm on how proteins fit to supports, how proteins get immobilized on physical things. And we think that that data set is incredibly valuable. Someone has to build it, and that data set is going to enable this tool, proteins to be used outside of cells, in a way that is industrially... Uh, industrially relevant and industrially important. And if nobody builds the data and nobody builds the learning of the proteins being used outside the cells, we're not going to get these technologies fast enough. So what what we do a lot of the time is just generate this flywheel of data to train how proteins touch surfaces and end up with one year of stability in any application that industry is interested in. But if you get your crystal ball out, where are we going to see nanofabrics technology deployed first are you good is it going to be in a oil refinery generating oil to put in our cars uh, ironically is it going to be manufacturing plastics digesting plastics capturing co2 what's your what's your crystal ball tell you in terms of the first commercially deployed biotech we believe that the best first applications of proteins on top of materials sold as biocatalysts are applications where you can directly sell into someone who needs a problem solved. It will be very hard for us to take proteins on top of things, biocatalysts, and produce new bioplastics. Why? Because we need an entire change of the industrial chemical process. And so this is five years out. I don't believe you'll see a lot of this at scale for at least five years. But what we think is some of the first examples of where this will be is areas where we currently use proteins to do interesting functions for us. So if you've ever used a bioactive detergent, you're using proteins that are eating stains off of your clothes. So there are applications of proteins in the world around us that we don't see, but lead to lower temperature wash cycles, lead to cleaner clothes. 
And we see this throughout all the different industries that are interested in producing high quality products. So you can expect to see some biocatalysts and protein usage in the industries that care about the environment and are closer to the consumer. So I'll give you one other example. How textiles are manufactured produces a lot of dangerous chemicals that then end up in water systems. How are those chemicals being treated today? Do consumers care? I think consumers care. There was a recent article in The Guardian about things like PFAS, this chemical that's forever chemical, accumulates in your body, is known to cause problems. The PFAS molecules are ending up everywhere from England all the way up to the North Pole. And how are we going to start eliminating these chemicals that are so small you can't see them, but proteins can act on them? Well, we need to get together and we need to use those proteins as a society, as a consumer, to try to degrade and then help the planet regenerate by getting rid of the stuff that we put into it. And we think that that can start with a lot of really forward-facing businesses, brands like Patagonia, brands like you know a lot of the, the textile industry is trying to become like Patagonia in terms of their forward thinking. But we think that consumers are also willing to make some of these changes on behalf of, of the planet. On this show, we're building a hall of fame for climate heroes, and we always ask our wonderful guests to leave something in First Mile's Climate Heroes Hall of Fame. So what or who would it be? I think the Hall of Fame product that that I would add is Oatly and oat milk. And the reason is a bit opposite of what you might think. But Oatly has a lot of patents on how enzymes are used to make the material in the oat milk more conducive to foaming. And so what I find really interesting about Oatly is that they are using protein biochemistry, these enzymes, to make their oat milk better quality as a product for consumers. And they're probably one of the first big name brands that's known for the product quality, but not for how they got there. And so to me, this is a huge opener for why enzymes and protein biochemistry is important to consumers. But it's one that kind of goes under the radar because people don't know of it. I love a slightly left field addition to the uh, Hall of Fame. So fantastic. Um, thank you very much. And also good for the planet because it's a nice vegan uh, uh, dairy replacement. So Grant, uh, can you tell us or rather tell the listeners what book podcast you're listening to at the moment, Netflix series, article on deep tech that you would recommend all of our listeners to go and check out? Well, I just read this great book called Decoding the World. And it's by um, this investor from California named Arvind Gupta and the co-author Paul Bronson. And the book's about essentially where biotech's been, where it's going, and what it's like to start a company in biotech. And so I thought that this was a great book that anyone who's interested in this space should read because it's great prose. It's very easy to engage with, but it's also giving you a lot of detail very quickly. This is a great one I read just a few weeks ago. What's coming up that's sort of the thing that's really exciting for you, for you and the team at Fabric Nano? Have you got something that's a sort of a breakthrough that's about to happen, or are you sort of riding high on the back of some new science at the moment? I mean, what's, what's coming up that you can share with us um, that's uh, super exciting for you? We've got a number of things that are exciting, um, ranging from the, the learning that our team is doing in this space of matching proteins with surfaces, we think that we're about to hit some singularity of knowledge here where we start to actually intuit responses that we haven't been able to currently predict, but we're about to be able to predict incredible things that we'll be then sharing at conferences. But we also have 
a number of products that we think will go to market in Q1 and Q2 of next year. So these products look like biocatalysts you can use in your home. They look like biocatalysts you can use in the agricultural sector. And we also have products that help democratize the access to this platform. So we're actually taking our knowledge and instead of trying to sell services, which we've been doing for a very long time, we're going to be selling products that allow customers to really directly engage with this type of technology. And so you can expect to see access to protein immobilization on coffee beans, which nobody sells today. But you can expect to see that being pitched and marketed around around the world at different conferences from us in the next six months. Amazing. Amazing. And so what does success look like for Fabric Nano? I mean, are you going to be shipping bags of, um, uh, what do I call them, protein structures? Biocatalysts is, is the biocatalysts. way Biocatalysts. So yeah. you're going to be shipping Fabric Nano bags of biocatalysts. So you're actually going to be generating product. We are going to be generating product in Q1 that looks like a biocatalyst powder that will have very specific applications and very specific lifetime extensions to the proteins and how functional they are for how long they're functional, which will be rolling out. And these will be physical products that are consumables by the consumer. This business is fascinating business because biocatalysts are, the analogy is the microprocessor. They are very potent IP rich tools that we have built, but they end up in consumers' hands as physical products. And so it's very interesting from a, from a venture perspective and from actually how the company is run. And this has been, I mean, I think this is a good place to end, Graham, because it's been absolutely fascinating that you started off 35 minutes ago talking about uh, how Fabric Nano is a deep tech company, but you've taken us through the deep tech journey to actually a product that is you going to sell. So, and I think we understand that entire entire process now. So thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on First Miles Climate Heroes. Awesome. Thanks for having us, Bruce. And I appreciate you walking through this very difficult material in deep tech and, <laughs> and starting to see how, how it is actually quite relatable once you get under the surface of biology. We'll definitely get you back on for a follow-up episode to explain to as lay folk how, it, um, how, how things are progressing. So Grant, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Bruce. I'm Bruce Bratley, and you've been listening to First Miles Climate Heroes, where we meet incredible people making an impact to tackle climate change. If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and subscribe to the show. We have brand new episodes every Wednesday.